Hello, Sean, can you turn that on? Should be wireless too. Did I not unmute it? Oh, ah, <laughs> hello church. Oh, um, good morning. I'm not gonna take up a lot of your time. I just wanted to say on behalf of the board that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. We are so blessed by the ministry that our pastors do. Uh, they work very hard to bless us, to build God's kingdom here. So do this month, all month, not just today or whatnot, let's pray for our pastors. Uh, I also encourage you to let them know how God has blessed you through their ministry, whether that's through email, write a nice formal letter, uh, tell them in person, any which way. Our, our pastors do deserve encouragement. They, they don't get very much. Um, yeah, we will have uh, another announcement. We will have a, a special time at the end of the month for our pastors. But yeah, just for now, do put this, you know, write this down. I need more hands writing in the crowd. Pastor Appreciation Month, Pastor Appreciation month is important. Uh, let's not forget to bless our pastors with encouragement as a small thank you for all the ways they bless us. Thank you. I will hand it over to announcements now. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. If you're new with us today, thank you for joining us. And for those of us, for those of you who are joining us online, we welcome you as well. And uh, if you're a guest with us today on your way out, please uh, stop by uh, um, kind of to your left. And uh, we have a special gift for you, and we'd like to bless you with that. Um, as we're thinking about uh, just God's goodness, I, I appreciated the worship this morning because it really draw, drew, 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 drew us into uh, the heart of God, the, the heart of God's presence. And uh, this morning I was thinking of uh, Psalm 145. Uh, the, the title in my Bible just says, uh, Great is the Lord. And I just thought it was so fitting for today and for kind of the season that we find ourselves in, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isn't that awesome? It's unsearchable, his greatness. You can't look into it. You can't, you can't really discover it. It's just great. One generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Just such an encouraging portion of God's word. A couple of announcements as we continue our service this morning that I wanted to uh, give to you. I've been asked to give to you. Um, Number one, the young adult lunch after the service will be in the foyer, not at the home as previously scheduled, so plan on that. Uh, if you are interested in uh, joining a small group but you don't have a lot of time, maybe you have an hour. Well, Sunday evenings is an online sermon discussion group, so they get together online via Zoom and uh, they talk about the sermon that was preached that morning. And it's a wonderful time, I think. And uh, you can join them tonight uh, from 6.30 to 7.30. If you want to join, you can contact Natasha Corner or email the church office. And Benita will email you a link by 6 o'clock. And so that's how you can get on to that. Um, on October the 9th... <clears throat> There's a plan for a cleanup for Anita Korthaus. Now, please forgive my pronunciation of names. I'm still trying to learn that. And uh, so I think you know who I'm talking about. If you want to be involved in, uh, with that, 
on October the 9th at 10 o'clock, you can contact Ur, uh, Arnold Urbanus. Um, if you have any new initiatives, now we're talking about budget. If you're, you have any new initiatives uh, or other changes uh, in your budget, now is the time to share them with us. Contact a board member or one of the pastors or one of the ministry leads with your ideas. Um, quote, you don't know where your idea would fit. Talk to Norm Price. Time is limited. Talk to somebody by October the 15th. And because we're working on the budget right now, so it's got to be in by them. And then finally, I want to uh, take a moment to welcome uh, Sebastian Evans. You saw him singing on my left over here. Uh, Sebastian, where are you now? Why don't you stand for a minute? Why don't you just stand up, let people see who you are. Uh, Sebastian is a uh, worship art student at Vanguard College. And uh, he's doing an eight-month field education unit, volunteering a few hours of his week with various responsibilities here at Northgate. So welcome, Sebastian. And now let's pray before Pastor Mark comes to bring us um, a word from God's Word. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless our time. As Pastor Mark comes to share the Word of God with us, I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be open, our minds will be uh, in tune, and that, Lord, we will hear from you uh, the very words that you have for us today. Change our lives, Lord, as we open them up to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. There is children's church today. Let's dismiss the kids. They can make their way out and head to the fellowship hall. Parents, if you want to guide them in that direction. Um, Yeah. So, good morning, Carol. Have fun. Good. Uh, So, I too want to welcome you this morning, whether you're online or in person. I guess. All the pastor marks of the church uh, welcome you and glad that you're able to join us. Um, Yeah, we're going to look at God's Word. So with that in mind, turn with me to the book of Philippians as we continue a series looking at this letter that Paul wrote. uh, And a journey into joy is really where we want to be setting our hearts this morning. Uh, And this morning we'll be looking at the topic of finding joy in a worthy, living a worthy life. Uh, And it really comes on the heels of the passage last week that the other Pastor Mark spoke about, uh, which I think was really rooted in those words of Paul. In Philippians 1, verses 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, The Living Bible puts it this way. He says, For to me means simply Christ. Living means simply Christ, and if I die, I should gain more of him. And that's just a lovely way of putting it. Uh, and, and you know, you're not going to understand our lesson today if you don't understand that very simple and profound thought, that living for Christ was everything to Paul, and he wants it to be everything for us as well. I actually like what something I read this week uh, about Charles Colson. Uh, Charles Colson mentions in one of his books that he, was, uh, he saw a picture of a college demonstrator who was holding up a sign that said, nothing is worth dying for. But Colson writes, if nothing's worth dying for, then nothing's worth living for either. Because until you've found something worth dying for, you never really truly begin to live. And living is precisely where Paul takes us in our passage this morning. If you want to follow along with me as I read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. He says this, only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father God, as we talk about living a worthy life this morning, I pray that, I just pray that your word would speak to us deeply this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would use me as your servant, but Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross. Uh, that way you might see Christ and hear from Christ this morning. Um, as we seek to make you our all in all. And Lord, even as we come to the communion table a little later today, Lord, that, that our hearts would just remember who you are and what you have done for us. And Lord, in holding that truth and standing upon that truth, it would change everything about us. That we'd be new creations in Christ and that we would live in a new way, seeking to glorify you in all that we do. Pray that you would be with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit uh, would be moving among us, helping this truth to find good soil in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin this morning by asking you a question. What comes to your mind when I say the words, living the good life? Well, chances are, if you're like me, when you think about living the good life, you probably think about having like a really good job. Or a nice house, a big house, fancy car, probably a good-looking wife or a good-looking husband. And let's, where's my kid? Well-obedient kids. Let's go. The, and while we're at it, let's add what? Six weeks of vacation, nice little cabin at the lake, throw in a private jet. That's, oh yeah, the good life. The good life is not like sort of living paycheck to paycheck. It's financial freedom. It's where a person can just live comfortably where there's not just sort of a lot of cares and sorrows along the way. The good life is, is kind of what winning the lottery is all about. But now let me ask you the question, what comes to your mind when I say the words, living a worthy life? Because I think that most of us know that the, a worthy life is something very different from the idea of what we think of when we think of a good life. A worthy life is not so much a life that's lived that is comfortable. It's more about a life that is lived, that is well-lived. It's seeking a life of significance, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life of character. And now would it surprise you to hear that the Bible actually has very little to say about living the good life? And maybe I should actually emphasize that because I think that there are many believers in many churches and even many pastors who get confused by this idea because there is a trend in some churches, especially I think in North America, there's a trend by some churches and some ministries that they are promoting the good life over and above what the Bible calls the worthy life. There are people out there teaching that it's the good life that God is calling people to, that, that God wants people to be rich, that he wants people to be healthy. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's right. He's like calling out those false teachers. How dare they? I agree. There's people teaching that, like health and wealth and wealthy and people that God wants you to be blessed financially and wants you to be happy. Their teaching is that God wants you to take all your problems away. And their message is really that God's blessing is shown through our comfort and through our safety and through our possessions. That, that's, that God wants us to have the good life. But nowhere does the Bible promise us that. Nowhere does the Bible even sort of allude to that being true. And you, you have to take some verses seriously out of context to even begin to suggest that. And I'm not saying that being rich is a sin or having nice things is bad. But for God, his concern is that not so much that people are living the good life. His concern is very much that they are living a worthy life. In fact, just listen to a few verses. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that word walk there is, is really, Paul's talking about, that's, a, that's an image of how we are living our lives. A walk is how we live, and we live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And again, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, he says, 
For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each and every one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, Ephesians 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for the good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And again, in our own passage this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The worthy life is the manner of which, to which we have been called to live as believers. And when I say worthy, a worthy life, uh, what that word really means is, is, is a life that's fitting. It's a life that's appropriate. Uh, the word in Greek actually comes from the root, uh, for the root word for city, which is polis. Uh, you see it nowadays in towns like Indianapolis or Minneapolis or for Superman fans, Metropolis. But the thought there really is one sort of, it's concerning citizenship. Uh, it's the idea that, it, that if you lived in a place, you belonged to that place. So you acted in a manner worthy of that place. You didn't bring sort of scorn or, 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 or shame upon your city by your behavior. And it didn't matter if you're actually physically in the city or if you're traveling around the world. You represented the place that you called home, the place that you belonged by your behavior everywhere that you went. And Paul's telling us here that the same is true for Christians. It doesn't matter where we find ourselves living or what country we find ourselves in right at this moment because the truth is we are citizens of heaven and we are members of God's family and we are to be living lives that reflect that reality. Living lives that represent Jesus. Lives that are a reflection of God's truth. Living lives worthy of the gospel. And as we've heard, the Bible has a lot to say about a worthy life. In fact, a worthy life is a much bigger topic than, than what is just said in our passage this morning. When we talk about a worthy life, we could, we could point to so many things. We could point to the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know what, that's what a worthy life looks like. And we would be right. But we could also go and point to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes in Galatians. And say, that's what a worthy life looks like. And we would be right about that too. Or we could go to 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter about the character of love, and say, that is a worthy life. And we would be right about that as well. See, a worthy life, living a worthy life, it's a big picture kind of idea. It's, it is a life that in its entirety, that is lived for Jesus and looks like Jesus. And that's not something we're going to sum up just in sort of the few verses of our passage this morning. But what Paul is telling us about a worthy life in this passage is also something we can't afford to miss. It's, it's part of this big picture. And it's an essential part of that bigger story. Because sometimes we need to sort of tackle those, those big idea thoughts sort of one bite at a time. And these are just a few bites about what the simple life or the, the worthy life looks like. And here are sort of a few just simple, sort of simple thoughts from Paul about living a worthy life in Christ. As he says again in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Now Paul also tells us that a worthy life is a life of standing firm. It's a life that actually, it takes a stand for something. A life that knows the answer to that question, what am I willing to die for? And then lives for that thing all of the time. And we know, as I said, Paul already gave us his answer to that question. Where he says, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in our passage, he tells us that our answer should be the same as his. As Paul even says that this is a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's telling us that it is the gospel upon which we take our stand. It's the gospel that our lives are to be built upon. 
It actually reminds me of another passage of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what all those verses are saying, it's that that's the gospel in a nutshell. And what those verses are telling us is that Jesus is to be our everything. In all that we do, we live for him and him alone because of who he is and because for, of what he did for us upon the cross. That should be our all in all. One of my former churches, we used to talk about making an anytime, anywhere, in every circumstance decision about Jesus. And that's taking a stand. And a worthy life means taking a stand on Christ and the gospel. It's living for Jesus. That's our foundation. Every word, every deed, every action, every decision we make needs to be rooted in that. Rooted in the gospel, rooted in the truth of God, rooted in our relationship with him. We live lives for Jesus. We take our stand. But as we'll soon hear, that's not always an easy thing to do because it can be difficult to take a stand, especially when something is fighting against you. You know, it's hard to live for Jesus in a world that only wants to live for itself. It can be hard to sort of swim upstream against, you know, the, the, the stream that the culture is going in. It can be hard to take a stand and say no when the whole world is shouting yes. But here's something that actually can make taking a stand easier. Because one of the things Paul tells us in this passage is that we don't stand alone. We're to stand together as the people of God. As he says in verse 27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. A worthy life is one where believers stand together, where we are side by side in one mind and one spirit, that there is a unity as we stand together in Christ. And that picture that Paul uses here when he says to stand firm in one spirit, I think a lot of people would sort of think, their minds would go at that time to sort of one of those military formations where, you know, the Roman soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder with their spears outheld and their shields, you know, tightly knit to protect themselves from attacks. See, this isn't a picture of standing where it's like one guy who has a stick, he's on a hill trying to fight off this enemy that's surrounding him. This is the church as a whole fortifying itself against our enemy. It's standing together. And standing together can make all the difference. There's a popular video on YouTube uh, from Africa. And it shows four lions pouncing on three Cape buffalo as the buffaloes are trying to drink from a watering hole. And those three buffaloes, it's a mother, a father, and a calf, they scatter when the lions attack. But four of the lions are able to get a hold of that tiny calf as it tries to flee into the lake. And it doesn't look good as the, as the lions begin trying to drag this calf out of the water onto the dry ground to kill it. And in this video, on top of everything else, believe it or not, some crocodiles show up because they're like, oh, somebody brought lunch. So, I mean, the crocodiles show up and they start fighting over this calf. It's a food fight in the jungle. And all seems lost. But that's when the herd shows up. And at least a hundred other Cape buffalo run in and they form a solid wall of muscle and horn and circle the four lions. And one at a time, the largest bulls take turns charging the lions. And one bull actually gores a lion and throws it about 10 feet in the air. And the lions still don't take the herd seriously until another lion is gored and another gets stampeded. Finally, the calf breaks free from the last lion, and the largest bulls chase the lions away. So the question is, what do you do when your enemy prowls around like a lion waiting to devour you? You stick with the herd. 
You stand united side by side with the people of God who are standing in the Christian faith. You know, the Christian faith was never meant to be lived alone. The idea of a Lone Ranger Christian is is something that is foreign to the Scriptures. We stand together. That's why God gave us the church. So we didn't have to be alone. Live this life in isolation. And that should serve as an encouragement to us. It should lead us to a life of greater boldness. It should fan the flames of courage in our lives as we live out our Christian faith. We are stronger together than when we are apart. In fact, just listen to the benefits that are ours when we do stand together as a church. I looked it up this week and someone recorded that there are 59 of those one another commands in the New Testament alone. And some of them are repeated over and over, but we're told as the people of God that we are to love one another, be at peace with one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. We're to instruct each other, confess our sins to each other, to pray for each other, greet one another, wait for each other, serve one another in love, carry each other's burdens, forgive each other. We're to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to submit to one another, admonish one another, encourage each other, build each other up, spur one another onto love and good deeds, and offer hospitality to one another. And you know, if we do all of those one another things, we soon realize that if we have a team like that at our backs, it can make it so much easier to take a stand for what we're living for in this world. It's so much easier to live a worthy life when you do it together. And that's what Paul really has in mind when he talks about standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. And yet we know that That kind of unity is not always the reality in many churches. And I just sort of feel a need to address something rather directly here. Um, Because I think, again, COVID is making us crazy. Can we agree on this? Uh, And so much of what's surrounding COVID is taking a toll upon the unity of the church as a whole. Because people are taking sides on matters like masking, and vaccines, and lockdowns, and, and all of those things. And they're taking sides with, the, with the sort of kind of this attitude where it's now either you're either with us or you're against us. And they're becoming things that are dividing us. And I've actually heard and seen of it tearing friendships and families and even churches apart as we bicker over those things. And please understand, when Paul tells us that we need to be, you know, stand firm in one spirit. He's not saying we can't disagree about those things. Unity of the church does not require sort of group thinking or thought police. And it's not like we can't differ on details about things we disagree on. But our unity does require us agreeing on those things that are essential. And no matter what we're agreeing about, that we make sure that Jesus And the gospel is lifted above any of those other things that we might be disagreeing upon. No matter where you stand on any of those issues I mentioned or any other issues that I didn't mention, it is our role, our calling as the people of God to find and maintain our unity together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're united in the word and we're united in our faith in Jesus. And we have to be so careful because it's so easy to let those details distract us from that. It's so easy to let those details that we're fighting about divide us. And we can let those side issues just disrupt the unity that we have in Christ. We can't let that happen, no matter how much we disagree. So if you have someone in your life that you're disagreeing with, And I think we all have at least a few of those people on our Facebook page, people we don't see eye to eye on about something, especially right now with COVID. I want you, before you talk to that person next, or even while you're talking to them, I want you to remind yourself of something. I want you to remind yourself that this person that I am disagreeing about with on this matter is still a brother or sister of mine in Christ Jesus. 
I want you to remind yourself that that person has also been saved by the same grace in Jesus Christ that has been offered to me. And that their opinion, even though it is different than mine, does not change the fact that they are saved by grace, just like me. And that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, just like he died for mine. And that that person isn't perfect, but neither am I. Because we're all redeemed and justified, not by our decisions on where we're standing on COVID, but we're justified by faith. Holding to one faith, one Lord, one baptism in Christ Jesus. And that no matter what happens in the world around us, we share a common hope that goes beyond those trivial matters of this life into eternal life with Jesus. Because we can disagree about the details of various things that come our way in life, but when Christians begin to actually fight, when there's actual conflict amongst themselves, it's likely that we have taken our eyes off the gospel. The gospel that should unite us. And if we do that, if we take sides on issues apart from the gospel as the people of God, we give up our unity for the sake of something other than Christ. And if we do that, the enemy has already won. And make no mistake, the enemy that we face is very real. In fact, look at verse 28. Paul says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and and now hear that I still have. Now when Paul here uses that phrase granted to us in verse 29, he's essentially telling us that we have two great blessings because of Christ and our relationship with him. There are two great privileges available to us as believers. And the first blessing, he says, is faith itself. It's been granted to us that we should believe. We have the gift of trusting in Christ for salvation. We don't have to trust in the government or education or philosophy or a strong military power. No, we get to trust in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And through our belief in him, we have access to all the peace and joy and love and hope and comfort and assurance and everything else that comes with faith in him. Reminds me a little bit of Paul in the book of Ephesians, first, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or when James writes in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You see, every spiritual blessing is offered to us in Christ. Everything good, everything noble, everything perfect, everything true and right and excellent and praiseworthy is found in Christ. And it's available to us. So if you want a response to that or even an application about that this morning, just let it be celebration. Let it be joy for all the good, all the blessings that are available to us in Christ because we have believed. It's been granted to us to believe. That's one of our privileges. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because there's another privilege available to us in Christ. But this one's a little harder to accept. As Paul adds, we not only have the privilege to believe, but we also have been given the privilege to suffer. He says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Suffering. And we all know we live in a world where everybody suffers. Christians and non-Christians alike get sick, they get cancer, they have car accidents, they lose loved ones. Suffering is not unique to Christians. But that sort of general suffering is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the kind of suffering that specifically comes from the world because of our faith. He's talking about persecution. So a worthy life shares in both the blessings and the sufferings of Christ. Because what Paul is telling us here is that he's really sort of saying there's all sorts of people in this world who want to live any way they want. They want to live in their sin. They want to live in denial of God. They want to deny absolute truth. They want to deny that there's any kind of final judgment. 
But those people find it really hard to do those things when they have all of these Christians all around them actively, actively living out the truth that they want to pretend doesn't exist. Our truth confronts the lies that they have built their lives upon. As Paul says, it reminds them of their destruction, even as it reminds us of our salvation. And that makes people very uncomfortable. Um, there's a story of a guy named Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe Wright was asked to open a session of the Kansas State Legislature in prayer. And as he showed up, everyone was sort of expecting the usual political prayer. You know what those are like, politically correct guard, jargon, non-specific religious references, you know. That's what all the other clergy did. Dear God, bless the people, amen. Instead, Pastor Joe, it said, offered these words. It said, Heavenly Father, we come before you today and ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and even inverted our values. And we confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and we have called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and we have called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and we've called it alternative. We have exploited the poor and called it lottery. We have neglected preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our un power and we have called it political savvy. We have covered our neighbor's possessions and we have called it ambition. And we've polluted the air with profanity and pornography. And we've called it freedom of expression. And we've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers. And we've called it enlightenment. God forgive us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now ask yourself, what kind of response do you think that prayer would receive if Pastor Joe did that today in, say, our parliament? I'm sure he would be labeled a bigot and a racist and he would be banned from Facebook and Twitter and there'd be protests at his church and cancel Joe, Pastor Joe would be trending on Twitter. You get persecuted when you stand for the truth. And that, that shouldn't come as any surprise to us because it's always been that way. You know, the word of God says, Psalm 34, verse 19, says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. 1 Peter 4.12, we're told, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In John 16.33, Jesus himself tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And again, he says in Matthew 10.22, all men will hate you because of me. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he tells us, indeed, Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is part of our walk. There's even a story about John Wesley, the great traveling evangelist. He was riding a horse one day when it dawned on him. He actually hadn't been persecuted for three days. So he wondered, maybe I've sinned, maybe I've been disobedient. So he got off his horse right at the roadside, got on his knees, and he began to pray. Well, there was some redneck on the other side of the road, recognized the evangelist and started throwing rocks at him. Just bounced off there, just missed Wesley. Wesley leaped to his feet and said, thank God everything's all right. I could be persecuted. Not all of us are going to be quite that enthusiastic about persecution. But we all need to know that in the end, as a Christian, persecution cannot be avoided. If you want a response here or your application. It's simply to persevere. Keep on standing. Keep on living out the truth upon which we have taken our stand. Keep, no matter what the world does or says, keep living a life worthy of your faith. Because what living for Christ is always going to bring us into conflict with the world in some way. And it may not be like Paul. You know, we may not be locked up in chains or put in jail. Because sometimes that persecution, when it comes, it it comes as whispers among your coworkers. Sometimes it comes as exclusions, you know, the invitations that never come. 
Sometimes it's some kind of slander against your character. Sometimes it's just anger or rejection or accusations from people around you. Sometimes it's just, why can't you just be quiet? Stop putting that God stuff in my face. But you have to understand these two privileges that we have in Christ, they're tied together. You can't have one without the other. And if we want the privilege of being identified with Christ as his people, that means we will also be called to suffer for Christ as well. So we're called to persevere. And we're called to support our fellow believers at the church. We're called to take a stand on the gospel. And we're called to represent our Lord and our citizenship in heaven. That's what it means. That's a big part of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we do that. We keep doing that no matter what the cost. Because that's what makes life truly worth living. I'm going to close with a story of a man named Mehdi Debash. Oh, sorry, Mehdi. But Mehdi was imprisoned by the government of Iran in 1984. And he was put in prison on the charge of apostasy. Of course, apostasy is just another way of saying that he converted from Islam to Christianity. The problem, however, is that the penalty for that crime, according to Islamic law, is death. So once he was arrested, Mehdi languished in prison for 10 years before his case could come to trial. And when it did, he was only allowed to write a written statement of his defense. And I guess it kind of makes you wonder at a moment like that, what do you say when you're in that place? What do you say when, you know, would be your defense if you were charged with believing in Christ Jesus? Where one retraction, one denial could mean your freedom. And yet one word of truth meant certain death. But with his life hanging in the balance, Mehdi closed his arguments with these words. And he told the court, Jesus Christ is my Savior, and he's the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. And I, a useless sinner, have believed in him and all of his words and miracles recorded in the gospel. I have committed my life into his hands. And life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. And on December 12, 1993, the court before whom that defense was made sentenced him to death. And Mehdi died. But he died knowing what he was living for. He died living a worthy life. So what about you? I guess the question that hangs in the air is, what are you living for? Because are you seeking the good life? Are you seeking to live a truly worthy life in Christ Jesus. And I guess we can just ponder that question as we come once again to the communion table this morning. As communion once again just reminds us. It reminds us of our hope, reminds us of our faith, it's a reminder of our Lord, and just that truth that he went to the cross, suffered and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That his body was broken, his blood was shed on our behalf. And this is a reminder that in Jesus dying for us, we have now been called to live for him. Because you never really start living until you've found something worth dying for. And for us as believers, this is it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And on that, that is what we take our stand. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about living a worthy life, we realize that it is only worthy because of you. Because of who you are and what you have done for us upon the cross on our behalf. And as we come to this table, Lord, may we reflect upon that truth, the, the, the bread and the cup that represent your body and your blood. Your life that was laid down 
to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could know forgiveness and so that we could enter into your family to be called the sons of God. Remind us of our hope. Remind us of our faith. Remind us of the gospel through these elements before us so that we may take a stand on that truth in our lives. And Lord, it is a blessing. It's a blessing even to be able to suffer for you. And I pray that our commitment to living this kind of life would not waver, that we would live for you no matter what. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the church that we've heard about this morning, the gift of one another that you have given to us because we don't have to stand alone, that we can stand united together in Christ, that we can do life together as the church, side by side, arm in arm, supporting each other all the way. Because, Lord, we truly are citizens of heaven. We pray that our lives would reflect that truth and that our walk would be worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, I'd ask the servers who are going to help me this morning if they would come forward uh, to assist me. As we come to the communion table again, it's a time, just a reminder of all that we have in Christ, a reminder of the kind of life that is available to us because of Jesus. And you don't have to be a member of this church to take this meal with us. All you need to have is faith in Jesus and the belief that he died for your sins. And if you've made those things possible in your life, then this table is open to anyone who has made the decision to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. As you know, we're using these cups uh, this morning uh, if you're not familiar with them, as you peel off the very first layer, there's a wafer underneath that we'll take for the bread. And then you'll peel off the last layer, and in that is the, the juice for the cup. So we'll just do one layer at a time. But now I just want to focus our hearts by reading the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Felix if he would just return thanks for the broken body of our Lord. So partake in this communion as a congregation. We thank you, Lord, because you counted us, you've counted us worthy to partake in this communion. I pray, dear Holy Spirit, that your presence will walk within us and amongst us today and continuously to give glory to you in our public and private lives. Mighty God, I, I pray that you help us to continuously remember what you went through to get us to where we are and your suffering, your broken body, that brought us salvation. I ask, mighty God, that you help each and every one of us to walk in the unity of faith to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Then we're told in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I'll ask Arnold if he would give thanks for the shed blood of our Lord. Father, <clears throat> Father, thank you for the blood that was shed by Christ Jesus on our behalf. He was willing to leave heaven to suffer, to redeem us. And we too are called to suffer that we can proclaim his majesty and his glory. And may we be mindful to live not for the present, but for the world to come, for the life to come. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sin committed under the first covenant. Amen. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul ends with that promise, saying, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll ask the worship team if they would come forward at this time and lead us in a closing song. <laughs>